welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to Mark Walton, who is the president and CEO of Guelph General Hospital. It's the week before Christmas, and that means it's time for this podcast to go for a long winter's nap. But before that, it's time for our annual fireside chat with a prominent member of the Guelph community. And since we've run the gamut of local political leaders over the last few years, we turn now to the head of the hospital. That big building on Delhi Street has seen the end result of a lot of the issues facing our community these days, like poverty, homelessness, a lack of family doctors, mental health and addictions issues, not to mention the ongoing effects of the COVID-19 virus and its own systemic issues trying to answer the increased needs of a growing community. It's a massive challenge. But in keeping with the spirit of the season, it's about the need to help people who can't help themselves. So managing health care is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Now, Mark Walton hasn't been the head of the Guelph General Hospital for even a year yet. Still, he had to hit the ground running. He's already appeared at City Council twice, once at a workshop meeting about paramedic services to talk about offload delays, and the other was a meeting about housing to talk about how homelessness and poverty create more work for hospitals as the lagging indicators. We know those challenges well. We cover them, well, every day. But then there's the long-running conversation about building a new Guelph hospital, which a lot of people in our community think is a panacea for our local health care woes. Make no mistake, though, as a rapidly growing community, Guelph does need a new hospital, but getting there is more complicated than you think. And it's one of those things that's on Walton's already very busy desk. But let's back up for a moment. Who is Mark Walton? Before coming to Guelph earlier this year, he served as the Senior Vice President of COVID-19 Pandemic Response, as well as the Regional Lead and CEO of Local Health Integrated Networks in the region with Ontario Health. You see, Mark Walton is one of those unusual people that gets into medicine, just not as a doctor or a nurse or a scientist. Kind of unusual, I know. We do always associate hospitals with people wearing stethoscopes, but... There are a lot of people with all kinds of experiences and expertise who make our hospitals work, and this Christmas, we're going to talk to one of them. So on this holiday edition of the Guelph Politicast, we sit and chat with Mark Walton about his background, what brought him to Guelph, and the one thing about Guelph General Hospital that he knows that no one else does. We'll also talk about where pandemic planning fell short the hard lessons he learned helping to lead the provincial pandemic response in his previous job, and the paradox of running a hospital, where you have to make it an attractive place that no one ever wants to visit. And finally, we will also talk about the hospital's role in fighting poverty, how fighting the affordability crisis is changing his job, and what the future of Guelph General and another future Guelph Hospital both look like. So I caught up with Mark Walton last week via Zoom. Okay, Mark Walton, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure, Adam. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, and this, this is kind of from my own personal point of interest, but you're Mark Walton. Were you aware coming to Guelph that uh, there was Mark Wilson, who is a, a used car dealer in town? Because for a long time, I was thinking Mark Wilson and you're Mark Walton, which doesn't really work out. 
<laughs> no, no, I wasn't aware. However, uh, in the Hamilton area, there are two other Mark Waltons, one of whom is a basketball coach. The other one is a surgeon. And I'm often confused for them. And when people meet me in person, they immediately know I'm not the basketball coach because I'm 5'8". And, and then I quickly uh, dispel any rumors that I have my uh, MD after my name. So that's typically where I get things mixed up. Uh, not with Mark Wilson, but I'll have to meet him and let him know that you've mentioned it. Okay. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about you then. Um, you are, you, or have come to the, the Guelph General Hospital uh, from, and I'm, I have the, the, the position up, but your last yeah. position before this was Senior Vice wow. President of the COVID-19 Pandemic Response. Yes. But I, I went further into your background. You have a, a Master of uh, Health Service Administration from the University of, of Alberta. That's right. And it made me curious about people who decide to go into healthcare but don't become doctors and nurses. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious about your journey in that. You wanted to be in healthcare, but you didn't want to um, wear gloves, I guess. You got that right. <laughs> well, you're, you're actually probably hitting on the sentinel issue. I didn't want to deal with bodily fluids and things along those lines. But <laughs> my, my first job in healthcare, so uh, my mother was a nurse, and uh, I had grown up in a world, and my father was a teacher, but I, I had grown up in a world hearing about stories from my mom of hospitals and some of the interesting things she had seen and done in hospitals. And it just so happened that at one point in time in her hospital, there was a job opening that I applied for. And it was as a ward clerk. And a ward clerk is effectively a unit secretary, somebody who helps mm. to coordinate the actions on the unit. They connect people with different departments, schedule things, et cetera. So I became a, a ward clerk at age 17 uh, and uh, in the emergency department of the then Mississauga Hospital. It was fascinating to me. Uh, I got to see how doctors and nurses and other professionals work together. I got to learn the language of healthcare, and I got to see the best and worst of humanity happening. You know, you saw people coming in and uh, massive traumas. You got to see people coming in who were giving birth uh, unexpectedly and, you know, just showed up in the emergency department. So you really got to see all walks of life, but I immediately got hooked by the environment and absolutely wanted to be part of the healthcare team. But to your point, I didn't want to wear gloves. I didn't want to touch the <laughs> gross stuff. I didn't want to get sort of get in there, so to speak. And it just so happened that a, a great mentor of mine in the in the organization pointed me down to the administration wing and said, you know, there's actually roles for people down in administration. And I'm like, well, what is administration? What do they do? And mm. anyways, took a trip down. There happened to be somebody who was going through their master's program. They talked to me about they were doing a residency or an internship at the hospital. They talked about their life. And I thought, this is it. And I went home that night and I said to my mom, I know what I want to do. And uh, it was ultimately at that time to be a hospital CEO. 35 years later, here I am. <laughs> uh, you made it. Uh, dream yeah. come true. Yep. Yeah. I'm curious, though, because of that last position you had about the um again i'm looking it up as i'm talking senior vice president of the covid pandemic response yeah is i'm trying to think of like in terms of how you made the move because as as you just said being the ceo of a hospital is kind of the dream job yeah um but what is kind of harder is like helping to manage like a the, the local response to a global pandemic or parachuting in to uh, a major urban hospital at a time of tremendous challenge and pressure. 
Yeah, well, you know, both have very specific challenges, right? And um, so I, I actually, when I started off my my time in March of 2020 uh, in the pandemic, I was actually working at a couple of different service delivery organizations. I was working as a supervisor down at Brentwood, which is a alcohol rehabilitation uh, facility. And that was very frontline. It was a group setting, uh, congregate setting. People stay in this program. And of course, in congregate settings, COVID spread very, very rapidly. So at that frontline level, we had to deploy um, infection prevention and control measures, you know, screening, isolation of people coming in from the outside. It was really very, very frontline stuff. And um, shortly thereafter, I got the call from Ontario Health to come step in. And it was really looking at the region, the West region, which sort of goes from Niagara um, up to uh, Owen Sound and then down to Windsor. So it covers a mm. very large swath of the West side of the province. And again, it was really around managing the capacity. How many beds did we have? How many patients did we have? Where were we screening? Where were we treating? Raising up tents and other things if needed you know really that disaster planning type work and then uh, I got asked to then move to the provincial response which was really at that much larger level so I had three different opportunities throughout the pandemic to work at different levels of the system and I'll say the challenges were unique at each level without question the front line suffered in a particular way regionally when you were trying to um, trying to coordinate the movements of that and make their jobs easier you had to redeploy staff. We were moving people from home care into long-term care to care for some of the elderly patients. You have to remember staff were getting sick, so we were swapping staff back and forth. And then at the provincial level, every region was having a different um, experience with COVID. The North actually didn't experience COVID until much later in the mm. pandemic because they didn't see the prevalence of disease and the spread that the urban centers did. And yet right. they were still under all the same lockdowns, et cetera. And so dealing with the North, dealing with the South, um, very, very different. And I would just say that, you know, all of it though was really around trying to figure out ways in which we could deliver care with the fewest number of people possible because so many people were sick and on the lines or were getting out of healthcare. And ensuring that our patients had some conduit to access care when and when where they needed it and i think you know that played out at almost every level of of the uh of the pandemic and so while everyone experienced it a bit differently what i'm really proud about was how everybody rallied around making sure that patients had access to the care that they needed and you know there was unquestionably some very very regrettable um, situations and deaths that occurred uh, during the pandemic. But I think the Ontario health system and our frontline providers absolutely rallied like heroes throughout it and, and did their utmost to make sure that that was at a minimum. What what I sort of remember at, at the start of uh, the, the pandemic and everything was sort of locking down, I think, you know, whether it's in the media and movies and things or just like general in, in terms of like emergency preparedness, it had something. It, it had been something I've been talked about and prepared for for a long, long time, and yeah. then it finally hits. And it just from my point of view, not being a scientist, not being someone who works in medicine, it just it it didn't hit the way you thought. No, when, you, when somebody said global pandemic, it it didn't happen that way. There was a lot of 
like just not going outside and and not interacting <laughs> with people. There wasn't so much as like panic in the streets and pandemonium and it, no. it, 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 it was I, I think that was sort of the biggest shock of all when this this moment finally arrived it didn't unfold the way our kind of our worst case scenarios thought it did yeah my, my kids used to joke they used to say i thought the zombie apocalypse would be so much more fun <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and you know I, I i think in some ways it it did play out in some ways like the movies you know the streets were abandoned i remember seeing pictures of new york city and times mm. square and there's nobody out there you know you look at downtown young and dundas it was desolate uh people were literally um dominated by what i you know the way i equate it was we had a lot of fear and very little facts at the beginning and so um in the absence of facts and science explaining this the natural tendency is to retreat and i think that's what people did uh, mm. to their credit and yet at the same time we saw some really strange behaviors when it came to things like toilet paper like, you remember this like there's people running out like i don't know what it is about toilet paper that made the world feel better but everybody suddenly had the need to run out and get that sort of stuff so there were some interesting human behaviors that came out but i i would say particularly during the early phases of the pandemic i'd say sort of in that first year we had great public support mm. for really trying to manage the spread and you know, we might look back at it now with our perfect knowledge and say, why did we do that? That didn't really make sense. Mm. But at the time, we did not have that perfect knowledge. We didn't know how it was spread. We didn't have a good sense if it was airborne. We knew it was droplet um, transmission. Mm -hmm. But um, many of the other things, how it was transmitted, what its half-life was, uh, its incubation time, how long did we need to isolate people? even the death rate associated it was largely unknown yeah and we were really only introduced to it through our seniors population in long-term care home and it was devastating because it had a significant death toll in our long-term care homes so the question was what's going to happen to our youth right and mm. you know we worry about both ends of the spectrum we worry about elderly we worry about our babies and so I think, you know, that domination of fear over fact really drove a lot of those behaviors and kept us all to ourselves. Looking back, would we have done it differently? Maybe, but I'd say given the information we had at the time and some of the preliminary observations we were making, I think that the response was entirely appropriate. I think that's sort of the, I don't know if you want to call it a mistake or sort of a, you know, I, I, let's call it a mistake of the pandemic. Um, even though it wasn't technically a mistake, it wasn't technically anyone's fault that the information just wasn't there. And, and I think we've come to expect um, if there's a medical situation, uh, there's a doctor who has an answer and here there was a medical situation and there were no doctors with any firm answers. Well, th well, that's right. And, and, you know, I, I do think, you know, there's often, and I read social media, I watch a lot of things and, and, uh, you know, there's sort of this notion, this almost conspiratorial thinking about how mm. this went down, et cetera. And what I will say, having worked with the highest levels of government, as well as some of the smartest people in the province, I got to sit in on some of the science advisory councils. I got to sit in with a variety of things. They're only as good as the data as they have. And right. this was a new virus it had relatives that we had seen before you know covid was a variant of x was a variant of y etc so we, you know we've seen similar um similar similarly structured viruses in the past but this was a new beast and 
Um, you know, much like any of us, physicians and scientists can work with precedent as a bit of an indication as to how things are going to go. Mm. But ultimately, it is about that specific scenario and how it plays out and the spread and how the public reacts and all of those types of things that become variables that ultimately determine how this thing plays out. Right. And you're absolutely right. There was no single answer. We looked to the World Health Organization. Dr. Fauci out of the States was clearly preeminent in a lot of the, the news releases that were coming out. But even on certain days, there was contradictory information, and your job was to best determine what's the you know the best fit based on the information we have at this point in time. And at the beginning, the information was not good, uh, yeah. and there was no single source of truth around this. And every country was experiencing differently. Italy yeah. had a very different experience than Canada had a very different experience than, say, the Caribbean nations, which really didn't see the preeminent spread like we did up here. So, you know, again, it, it, it was very difficult to determine what was actually going to be the, the real case scenario for Canada. Yeah. Yeah. I want to look at it from the other end. Um, I mean, we're, we're sitting here at the end of 2023. Um, I know that for a while there, uh, when the COVID rates were, were low, there was uh, the masking was optional at the hospital. That has since changed. Yep. Yep. I know that the Delhi Street entrance uh, <laughs> to the hospital was reopened this year, which I, I I think a lot of people saw as like a real kind of like the the pandemic is official officially <laughs> official symbol that it's over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of like the daily practice, like how much uh, of a shadow does COVID uh, cast over over your work and your, your staff's work every day right now? Oh, I, I think a significant one. Um, you know. COVID taught us uh, if we didn't know it already and, and, you know, we'd had SARS, um, but routinely on an annual basis, we always experienced respiratory illness, flu, RSV, you know, within hospitals, there's Norwalk, rotavirus, et cetera. There are these things that just sort of naturally occur in hospitals. And so infection prevention and control has always been a part of what we do. But I would say that, you know, the one true legacy that COVID has left has been just the unrelenting vigilance that we need to have around infection prevention and control. Mm. And so hand washing, sterilization, uh, masking, you know, donning and doffing PPE and droplet precautions, like these are no longer nice to have. These are a standard of business that just occurs. And you know, that might surprise people that we didn't always do that. But, you know, I think over time you get comfortable with risk and you understand it a little bit better. And uh, in some ways that uh, it doesn't make you lazy, but it it uh, widens the corridor of acceptability of risk for individual right. practitioners. And uh, what it what we learned rapidly is that, you know, COVID takes advantage of any crack in the armor and uh and that we need to be vigilant on that so ipac i would say is sort of a lasting legacy that is there and then i would also say the other lasting legacy that it has left is the exodus of people from the health system mm. and so uh as, and what i mean by this is 
There were a number of people who left prior to the pandemic, just prior when it happened. You know, they're kind of like, uh, I'm at the end of my career and I'm going to retire. This seems like a good time. Right. There are many people that stuck it out all the way through. Uh, and there are many people that left at the end of it. Um, but we saw some exoduses throughout and that, that um, migration of established health leaders out of the system left a real gap for us in terms of that experienced, I'm going to say nurse, physio, respiratory therapist. And now what we have are a lot younger managers Mm. and a lot younger people coming into the system and keeping in mind that a lot of our nursing students and allied health personnel did a lot of their training online. Mm. Some of them are now coming to the hospital with a lot less hands-on experience mm-hmm. with patients than let's say we would have seen five years ago with some of our other graduates. So you got greener graduates coming in, greener leaders. And so now what we're doing is we're really rebuilding a workforce that is conversant in the way that a hospital runs. And uh, I would say that is a very new dynamic, but certainly a lasting shadow. You said, what kind of shadow did COVID cast? I'd say that's the other legacy that it's left is a much greener workforce that now requires a big investment of time and mentoring and skill to make sure that they get up to speed. And that's not to say that the new people are um, less capable. It's just, Absolutely. you know, as, as, as you sort of develop, uh, you know, as, as you sort of get the chance to practice, you, you learn those shortcuts, you learn to read the signs better, your workflow gets easier. Hundred percent, and and you know a lot of that experiential learning as well is about how do you do this well with a patient, right? So right. they're all very well versed in medications and you know in the administration of therapies. This is not about safe care, but what I'm suggesting is that the experience of working with another human being in that bed, right? Uh, situational analysis as they walk into the room uh, the conversations that naturally happen between patient and and those are all brand new things because uh, they haven't done them before and they haven't even done them in person maybe just in simulation labs things along those lines so i think that uh, there's no question uh, the grads that are coming out are eminently qualified you know they're capable of providing safe and effective care but it's almost that experiential learning, sort of that wisdom that comes with practice. Mm. Uh, that's where we're seeing a little bit of that gap. And uh, given that our managers are younger, they also had to, had to lead people through that, right? So they're yeah. learning how to lead a new group of people, and the new people are learning to do the job at the same time. So mm-hmm. lot, lots of opportunities for uh, development and growth, but uh, I would say a bit of a challenge for us in the near term. I mean, it's a challenge too, you know, you kind of want to hang on to that institutional knowledge. Um, and you can understand people sort of being burned out, you know, you can understand yeah. being a doctor in a global pandemic and burning out. But I mean, are there ways and is this something you're working on to like hold on to people, even if it's just in a capacity to sort of like lend that mentorship, um, even if they're not like dealing with patients hands on every day? Oh, for sure. And, and, you know, part of the, part of the pandemic response actually was to reach out to some of those newly retired RNs or, you know, previous leaders. And I will say to their credit, a lot of them came back, um, maybe not in the same roles that they would have done, but, you know, a lot of our immunization clinics, as an example, were staffed with nurses who had recently retired. They could still give an injection. 
Uh, it wasn't heavy back-breaking work that they needed to do. They weren't lifting patients, et cetera. But they certainly could sit and give needles and arms and, and make sure that people were um, getting those vaccines. And um, so I, I will say, you know, there was a real outreach to previously retired nurses. And the other thing that we did was um, we also worked with the colleges, the professional colleges. So the Ontario College of Nursing, as an example, um, to help with the credentialing and approval of people who were internationally trained, living in our communities already, but because they hadn't written an exam or they hadn't finalized, you know, a course or something, um, were a few steps away from becoming a nurse that was qualified to work in our communities. But for now, they were working service jobs or, you know, right. something along those lines. And um, so really expediting that process so we could get them on the front line. So I would say people did leave. But also when called upon, many came back to help just in a different capacity. And I think our challenge right now is that real frontline, heavy lifting care that is required. And, and that's where we see a bit of that gap. I want to address another gap we kind of talked about before we started recording your recent appearances at City Council, which I think points yeah. to maybe a, a shows how much healthcare is sort of impacting us on a community level. If you ha see the hospital CEO around the, the council table, but your most recent appearance uh, was in regards to homelessness. Yes. And I think that there's kind of more awareness now that not having a home is, doesn't just affect where you live or how you live. It affects your health. And I guess how much of your job going forward is going to be, I guess, working outside that, what is technically what you're supposed to be doing, which is administering a hospital, but now you're also having to take on this role of kind of a social worker. You're kind of having to petition the government to say, like, stop creating work for us um, by by looking at this this other issue, these social issues. Yeah, well, for sure. Uh, and, you know, if you go back in time, uh, we were talking a little bit about my degree. One of the first things they teach you in the degree is they go through some of the, you know, really sentinel documents that... Um, the government has produced and you know we talk about the canada health act and you know, all the things that are sort of the basis of our um the basis of our universal health care system in canada which we take great pride in but one of those sentinel reports was by a guy named mark lalonde and he the lalonde report this was in 1973 talked about the importance of social determinants of health and predicting and assuring health for Canadians going forward. So that meant all the basics of income and education and housing, because if you get those things right, people tend to be healthier later in life, right? Yeah. Well-educated, better jobs, better pay, uh, better housing, life is good. And we, we know this statistically that when you look at people in various brackets, et cetera, less education, less income you have, your health outcomes tend to be poorer. And uh, so we, we know empirically that that is the case. And now what we're seeing in Guelph is a breakdown around affordable housing. And the challenge being, of course, is that we're seeing an increase of people who are underhoused, roughhoused, precariously housed on the streets. And, um, you know, I when I speak in front of council, I am certainly speaking partially on behalf of the uh, the hospital, because we do see the impacts of that. People showing up in our emergency departments, 
And especially as the winter months come for hypothermia, mm. exposure, all of frostbite, take your pick. But I'm also speaking on behalf of a much larger coalition, which is our Ontario health team. And that is representative of community agencies, mental health and addictions agencies, primary care, et cetera, who understand this notion that housing equals health. Housing is health. And, um, you know, for me, um, as probably the largest health organization in the community, I can't help but align my messaging with those groups because the work we do upstream to ensure that these people are well housed and well cared for, uh, number one, it's the morally right thing to do from right. my perspective. It's a moral imperative that we address this. But uh, the downstream impact is that I avoid ED admissions of people uh, with all of those things that I've rhymed off uh, in the winter months. And I just believe fundamentally that if the hospital's voice is helpful in carrying that message that housing is health and elevates it differently, that's why I stand in front of council along with my OHT colleagues, because I believe it. Uh, I believe it's our moral imperative to help these individuals. And frankly, it's good for my organization because it does help us to avoid ED admissions, death, and, uh, you know, uh, in some cases, you know, a, a crippling injury right. that will impact that person's life. And we know fundamentally that when people come to our emergency department who are homeless or underhoused, that the um, uh, they take two to three times as long to treat and assess and release back to where they need to go. Uh, and similarly, if we have an inpatient who is homeless coming in and they've had surgery, again, it's very difficult to place them back to where they are because they need to heal properly. Right. And so the length of stay can be longer. So all of this to say, Adam, it's a, it's a really critical issue for a community. It has multiple impacts socially, economically. Um, and, and for us at the hospital, it has a real impact on who we see in our emergency department. And, but the way you're talking about it, it makes me think this is pandemic control because we heard that all the time in the pandemic. By the time a patient gets to the hospital, it's kind of too late to do anything for them. You can make them comfortable, you put them on ventilation or whatever. But the goal was to not get COVID in the first place. That's right. And and so the goal would be to not have people who are homeless oh, in the first right. place, right? right? Or people who have a means of shelter that, you know, meets them where they're at. And I, and I think we, you know, we often talk about the homeless population as a homogeneous group. They are not, they are like right. any other element of society with different reasons why people are homeless. There some are there, um, uh, you know, due to life choices. Some are there due to our current economic climate, you know, mortgage rates have gone up. People who live on a, on a razor thin uh, budget, you know, a shift in the interest rates, a shift in the tax rates, um, all have an impact on whether they can viably live in their domicile. And I would just say, um, you're absolutely right. It is about getting upstream, but that's also a lot of work that you don't see immediate payoff on. Right. When we talk about education, good nutrition, you know, a mental health and addiction supports for youth and adolescents. We're trying to get ahead upstream so that they don't become the adults later in life, you know, that uh, that can't find their way through society. And, uh, you know, to me, 
This is our biggest challenge in the health system is we're always so focused on the crisis of the day. We can seldom think about what do we need to be doing to avoid the crisis of tomorrow. Right. And that, that gets to something I was thinking about this morning, getting ready to talk to you. As the CEO of the hospital, your job is to essentially create the best possible facility that the least number of people should have to use. <laughs> yes, that's, that's it's a, a, it's, a, it's a terrible paradox. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it's funny, I'll often when I go out and, you know, we obviously do fundraising for the hospital and I meet people in situations that are not within our four walls. And I always sort of jokingly say at the end of those conversations, I hope I never see you, right? Like, <laughs> I, I don't want you here. And, you know, there's the, 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 the one very happy thing that happens in our hospital are the births of babies, right? And we celebrate that. And, you know, it's a wonderful, uh, interesting paradox of, of healthcare is that some of the greatest joyous, joyful moments in life happen here as well as some of the saddest. But um, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, we are the cornerstone of our hospital or of our community's acute care needs. Mm -hmm. And um, we need to continually invest in the best technology for those worst case scenarios, those worst times. And uh, our desire is that nobody ever goes through that. And so, you know, we celebrate safety initiatives. We celebrate things that keep people safe. We, you know, love health promotion and disease prevention, you know, cut down on smoking, eat healthy. Those are all great things. But when those untoward things happen, when those life events happen, you're absolutely right. We need to be ready for them. And that means having the best hospital, the best practitioners, the best technology available. And we hope we don't have to use it, but we know we will. That sort of brings me to the thing that I think you probably hear about a lot. And it's probably the thing that a lot of people are listening to this have probably been on pins and needles waiting to hear about, which is a new hospital. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that it's still years out. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of planning to do, but you know, it does seem to be a thing where a lot of people in our community think that a lot of our healthcare problems will be solved with a new building. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that there is a need. We're a growing community, but can you talk a minute about sort of what the planning for that facility looks like and maybe why it takes so long to sort of get there despite, I think, the tremendous community support to, to actually get going on this? Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, this is where I'm going to bring in a little bit of my lens from having worked on the government side of things and sort of provincially as well as locally, right? Mm -hmm. And. Uh, you know, having sat on the government side of things and worked with the ADMs and the DMs and the minister's office, et cetera, I can tell you there is not a single hospital that doesn't come forward that says we need a new hospital or we need to expand or we need, you know, I, I forget the last count of hospitals in the province, but I'm going to say somewhere in the 140 to 150 zone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's mergers and consolidations and whatnot, so it's hard to keep track sometimes. But let's say about 140 hospitals in the province. I have no doubt every single one of them could make the case for either an expanded hospital or a new hospital. And hospitals are not cheap buildings to build. They are sophisticated pieces of technology with oxygen and telemetry and, you know, technology that rivals that of some of the greatest labs on the planet. And I, I think that, you know, when you look at, um, the cost of those, if the government said yes to all of them, we would quickly be in a real pickle <laughs> uh, as a province, financially speaking. And so the government, 
in its wisdom, and I, I do believe this is wise because there are a lot of needs out there, including schools and libraries and bridges right. and roads, right? Like, you know, we're, we're not the only game in town. Um, they they set out a process which is quite lengthy, which is really about defining why do you need it? So mm. what's going on with your population? Mm-hmm. How old are they? Uh, you know, how many of them are they? What are we looking at in terms of senior citizens versus middle age versus young? Uh, what's the growth rate look like? And so they ask you at first, and uh, you know it's quite a lengthy process um, to really define the needs of your population. And then once you understand that, and that's sort of what's called a pre-capital submission, really talking about your rationale for why you need this, you then begin to talk about a master plan, which would say, well, if that's what you need in terms, or sorry, if, if that's who needs it, what is needed? And then so you start to talk about the amount of services that would be required in order to right. satisfy. And that's established against benchmarks and a variety of things. But it begins to flesh out um, sort of the profile of the hospital. What it is not is that's not when you start drawing the beautiful towers and the architectural drawings of what the hospital will look like. But it describes more about the services that would be required. Mm. And Each of these stages you submit to the ministry and they ask questions back, clarifying questions, things that they've learned in other projects, things that might have hung up other projects, and they they do that. And if you get that far, you can actually begin to predict the size of hospital that you would require. Mm -hmm. Now, for us at Guelph General, we have gotten to this. So this is called phase 1.2 in the capital planning process, 1.2. And that is basically our ability to articulate what we would need. And uh, now we haven't talked about whether it's one tower, two towers, anything along those lines. But what we have said to the ministry is we expect that it would probably represent an organization that's about three times the size of our current Mm -hmm. hospital. Mm -hmm. And that would exist on a parcel of land that is probably more than three times the size of our existing land. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you've asked me the question, do we need a new hospital? Well, the answer is a definitive yes, because we've gone through that population needs analysis the current site is just not viable for us because we're locked on about 13 or 14 acres of land so we'd have to find some other place and we don't know where that is at this point in time so that's part of what we need to go through um but that is really where we're going with the government is to the next steps which is if they agree with those are the services you need they then issue us a planning grant where we get really detailed and then Mm -hmm. we start talking about what would it look like? How would we configure it? You know, that's when you start to see some of those beautiful architectural drawings coming across, things along those lines. And then when you get there, then you ask for approval, right? So we're we're a ways off. This is just kind of the warm-up, uh, you know, to get the conversation going. But typically for most hospitals, this is a 10 to 15-year process from start to finish. We're probably at about year two. Mm. My job. And sort of what my board expects me to do is try and shorten that time frame as much as possible because we are a very fast-growing community. We absolutely need a new hospital. The aging infrastructure here is significant. And frankly, uh, if we hope to accommodate the needs of our population, we need a new hospital. And it can't be on the existing site that we have right now. I thank you for that because I, I think um... – because you know, I, 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 this is something I've dealt with in covering yeah. politics. We we, all, we often see 
comes to the public when it's kind of like relatively finished and say so, and we you know government whatever government it is whatever city office it is it's like what do you think and yeah. then you give notes and we're kind of looking at this from the beginning side and wondering why don't we just like get a piece of land dig a hole put a building up and, <laughs> and we have a hospital and well you know keeping in mind that the ministry cuts the check for 90 percent of this capital build right right Right. You got to convince the guys that are writing the check that this is a solid bet, right? And this is this is credible, and we have a great case, sure. no question about it. Um, but you know, there will come a time because it's required in all of these processes when our community, our local politicians, our provincial politicians—we have Mike Schreiner and Ted Arnett, of course, from Wellington and and uh, Guelph. Um, we will need to have our voices crescendo at a certain point in time when we've got all the plans together and we're looking for that approval uh really calling out to our provincial government to support uh, the needs of the community and i will say uh local city fantastic to work with on this we're already talking to them about how we do this together county of wellington same thing right you got to get these guys engaged early and often on this and really good discussions already on how we're going to make this happen together and even in working with our provincial government at the ministry of health capital branch and otherwise really great partnerships and those luckily are some of the ones that i carried over from my previous post at ontario health so i'd say we've got all the right people in the room having the right conversations but it is a lengthy process and one that we're going to have to continue to chip away at Perhaps not inappropriate to point out that black tie bingo tickets are now on sale too. <laughs> um, always, always happy to point that out. Thank you for that. Uh, maybe to wrap up, and you know, it, it, it's it's sort of nice to talk to people um, who do your job, and I like to ask uh, a question, not necessarily about what I know or what I think I know, because I know I don't know everything, <laughs> but you know everything about your building. So what's one thing about Guelph General Hospital that you know that everybody else doesn't? So maybe I'll give you a I'll give you a fact that I think most people don't know about hospitals, any hospital. And then as I'm giving you that more generalized fact, I'll think about something that's a bit more interesting about Guelph General. But uh, okay. I, and I haven't discovered all the secrets yet. So, you know, I'm, I'm still relatively new. I'm about seven months in, so I, I may not know all the really cool things about Guelph General. But the one thing I would say that most people don't know about hospitals as a building is that while the government funds the walls, the floor, and the ceilings, and everything that's sort of encompassed within those capital infrastructure, every piece of medical equipment, desk, chair, computer, etc., is acquired through community fundraising mm -hmm. so there is not a single element within the organization around equipment that is funded by the government so our mris our ct scanners that is all through you mentioned black tie bingo our foundation and its fundraising is how we continue to bring in new equipment state-of-the-art equipment etc and i i think a lot of people don't realize that when we talk about government funding that they actually don't fund those things. That's our community that funds those things. Right. And, and I think that's often a shock to folks uh, because they think that you know the government pays for everything in here. And in fact, the government, while very generous, does not. It right. uh, really covers the basics. So I would say that would be one thing I would say. Um, the other thing I would say about Guelph General, yeah, so 
I recently discovered this is, of course, we have our own power plant on mm-hmm. site, uh, which is actually quite a fascinating, uh, antiquated and old uh, piece of technology sort of down at the other end of our property. And right now we're actually looking at how we convert some of these things to be greener, better, less carbon footprints. You know, we are here for at least the next 10 years. Uh, I, you know, realistically, we're looking at a 10 year horizon. Uh, we've got to continue to thrive and survive in this building. But I think we also have to be cognizant. It was built some parts of it in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a lot of upgrades to do just to make it contemporary and, and to make sure that it's environmentally responsible. So it's a fascinating little area of the hospital. I go in there and, you know, I see these massive machines chugging away, big heaters and boilers and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have our own little power plant down at the end here that that takes care of a lot of what goes on. And, of course, should the grid go down, uh, generators were largely self-sustainable as an organization uh, for a period of time. We wouldn't want to do it for for weeks mm-hmm. but uh we you know we've got our own generator etc and all that stuff kicks in if uh, if the rest of the world goes dark so it's kind of a self-contained little city over here ready for the next crisis whenever that is <laughs> yeah um, that's right let's let's hope it's not too soon well that seems like a hopeful place to leave it on um so mark walton uh you know as i was saying this is our christmas episode so merry christmas to you happy holidays thank you for uh for for doing this and uh having a little Christmas chat with me today. I appreciate it. Well, fantastic. Merry Christmas to you and happy holidays to you and your listeners. And um, I'll just finish by saying we're here when you need us, but we hope you don't. So I'll talk to you soon. And once again, that was Mark Walton. To learn more about Guelph General Hospital, you can go to their website at ggh.org.ca. And you can also learn more about fundraising to support the hospital at the website for the foundation of the Guelph General Hospital, and that's at gghfoundation.ca. While you're there, you can buy tickets for Black Tie Bingo in the new year or take part in some holiday giving. Either way. And speaking of the holidays, uh, Merry Christmas to all you listeners out there. Thank you so much for tuning in all throughout 2023. Keep tuning in as we will be cranking out new episodes throughout the holidays and on into next year, and then be back sometime in the middle of January with brand new guests and brand new interviews. But that's it for now. That's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, You'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, or you can send me an email at Adam A. Donaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. The greatest gift of all for me, because that means I get to keep doing the show. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, well, we'll see you next time.